0: The veneer theory is the idea that, you know, civilization is a, is a veneer on top of savagery. And if we dismantle civilization, then we just become savages. I think it's the other way around. <laughs> I think that the, the sort of what we call civilization um, is, is, is a savagery on top of, you know, something deeper and more beautiful um, that we have been denying and ignoring. And actually, if we were to crack through that veneer of separation of, you know, the trauma that we hold. Um, underneath, it's, you know, the the stuff is there. Uh, It's been there for a long time because it's it's how we got here in the first place. It's what allowed us to evolve. Um, Whether it's talking about our, you know, natural inclination towards kindness, towards friendliness, towards mutual aid, like towards, these are all there for people.
1: Hello and welcome to Planet Critical the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists, and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political, and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is my dear friend, Paddy Lohman. Paddy is a strategist dedicated to understanding, revealing and shifting the narratives that conspire to keep society sick, to keep our systems perverse and to keep us on a track for climate destruction. In 2020, Paddy co-founded Stories for Life, which asked the question, how might our stories help design an economy in service to life? He also co-founded InterNarratives, a space for folk working on narrative change and the role it plays in systems change. Paddy has been doing this work in some form or another for a long time now. And not on this show, but in our own conversations, he's told me how when he first realised the extent of the crisis, his first thought was that maybe business would help. If we could just change the business world, then everything else would fall into place. And so he tried that for a few years and he realized that that wasn't working. And then he thought, OK, politics. And so he worked with the UNF Triple C climate champions ahead of and for COP26. And COP26 was, frankly, devastating. Paddy now spends his time working on the projects that he thinks of as crash pads for when the system collapses, pockets of possibility and community that can catch people in the future. Paddy and I have only known each other for a few years and we met through doing this work but he is one of the kindest and wisest people I know. He has committed himself wholeheartedly to being in service of life. His bravery and compassion are admirable, and I'm delighted to introduce you all to him today, and have no doubt his words will stay with you for a very long time. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques, and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Patty, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show.
0: Total, total pleasure to be here. I thank
1: don't know you. why we haven't done this earlier. I mean, we practically have one of these conversations every week anyway. Um, so it's my fault, really. I'm sorry. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it's a complete honor. I'm <laughs> <laughs> delighted to be doing it. Yeah. Um, and let's keep having those conversations.
1: Yeah, definitely. They're incredibly nourishing, and I hope all listeners find this one just as nourishing. I hope all listeners find that they um, can follow along because we do tend to jump about. It. But at least we're not walking through a forest this time.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or maybe if only we were walking through a forest this time.
1: <laughs> the Pied Piper of the crisis. <laughs> Talking yeah, about exactly. Yeah. All right, listen. Let's dive in. Um, mm. Why is the world in crisis, Patty?
0: Mm. Mm. Um, so I just, yeah, I, I've been, I guess, thinking about that for a long time and the simplest, the simplest sort of version of it that I've arrived at, accepting that, that that's, it's inherently limited <laughs> <laughs> is, um, because trauma and, and therefore healing. And that's like a very simple, arguably simplistic statement but it i think it sits on quite a lot of a lot of deeper things a lot of deeper understanding um that people have been gathering for a very long time and is starting to come through at this point in in various places in a way that feels uh really encouraging um actually it's what we do and how we respond to that that is the challenge. So that that's the really simple, simple <laughs> description. But I think it, ne- it definitely needs unpacking to to explain further. Otherwise, people are like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or like, "That sounds lame." I don't want to do that. I mean, yeah. I don't know. But yeah, yeah, that's that's the simplest answer because trauma, so therefore healing.
1: That's a five-word answer. That's the first five-word answer given on hey, this wait, show.
0: Beca- because trauma, therefore healing. forward. words.
1: Four right. words. Four words. Right. I'll delete that yeah. little and. and a <laughs> comma. <laughs> yeah. Because trauma, therefore healing. Well, let's unpack it. How can hmm. we unpack it in a way that doesn't make it sound like hippy-dippy um, astrology, you know, soothsaying witchcraft?
0: Yes. Okay, trust it. Um, and it's, it's a question that is, that certainly one I, I carry all the time when I'm doing anything in, because I think I'm so wary of, of the kind of narrative dynamics that are at play, the cultural dynamics that, that are at play. And it's really, it is really hard to sort of surface understanding so that it can be, you know, seen in our, in our current, uh, kind of cultural reality, I suppose. Um, and so that is such a, it's like a critical question that, that we should all be sort of trying to answer, I guess, all the time. And I think the answer partly comes through the fact that what we're talking about, and I'll, I'll explain it more, but that is being revealed by what we have traditionally kind of wielded as our channels for truth or our instruments for truth. Um, so, you know, science. Mm-hmm. In, you know, various sort of disciplines of science uh, carrying or having breakthroughs simultaneously that all reveal, essentially reveal understanding that has been carried for a very long time um, to be accurate. Um, so sort of indigenous or, you know, whatever we want to refer to them as uh, wisdom, knowledge basis, wisdom perspective, um, that we have dismissed in our cultures as heathen or backwards or, you know, Hippy dippy or woo woo or whatever else, and our sciences that we have always lent on as our kind of robust, you know, this is rational, this is where truth comes from. And um, are now saying, oh, those guys are right, <laughs> 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 and they have been for ages. Um, so that that I think is when we can kind of, to some extent, lean on that, acknowledging that you know, of course, science itself is not, is perhaps not, <laughs> mm. and this is part of the problem here, an ideal channel for truth. Um, we can at least bring people into it's a way of bringing people in into the room, um, where otherwise the door would be, you know, closed in their face because it would say hippy dippy on the front. Mm. Um, so once we're in the room, we can kind of have a more nuanced conversation about science and other knowledge bases and how, you know, we can sense make together through all of that. And, um, but yeah, the, the, the trauma part as I have come to understand it, um, and I think this is a good example of. Desmond Tutu's lovely uh, suggestion, which I often refer back to, of um, when he said it's at a certain point we need to stop pe- pulling people out of the river and go upstream to find out where we're falling in. Mm-hmm. And so the tra- the trauma point is essentially, I think, as, as far upstream as it might be possible to get. And when I say trauma, what I'm kind of referring to is is what a person called Mickey Cashtan, I think was the first person I heard, describe it like this. Uh, has described as original trauma. And what she refers to there is, is a, a moment in time or a period in our history when we essentially began a process of uh, kind of invading each other. And her, I think her suggestion, if I'm going to kind of simplify probably or, or probably miss things, but it is that basically when agriculture was occurring, when we were settling down, uh, having previously been kind of wandering about, um, we created conditions that led to dangers that we perhaps weren't able to anticipate, whether it was diseases becoming suddenly a problem or suddenly running out of resources in a place that we thought would have kind of the ability to sustain, uh, ongoing supply of resources. And that then leading to, uh, death, to, um, uh, to violence. And then the need to go elsewhere and get other stuff, because we'd run out of stuff, or because our people were suffering, or because we'd run out of people, and we need to get more people. So s- some people, and it's not everybody, but some people were experiencing this, and as a result, they then go and invade other people to get their stuff, to get their women, so that they can have more children, etc. And then that leads to a set of tra- trauma-based responses. Um, the need to accumulate because we need to get stuff because we're running out of ours um, the need to uh, dominate to go to someone else and take their stuff um, so the need to control to control the situation, control the resources out of fear of losing them uh, and in all of that the need to separate separating ourselves from the other Um the other that we're having to invade and take the stuff from um, and the need uh, to separate ourselves from from nature and we what we even that in itself calling it nature is a separation and that all of this I'm talking about here is occurring kind of I guess gradually um over time, but if we look at that if we look at that analysis and say okay well we were traumatized, that led us to accumulate to dominate to control and exploit and to separate and we design systems based on those things that you can you can see (laughs) you can see the through line up to now like where we are today with our systems of economics politics that are based around accumulation around control around certainty around separation domination and so the suggestion is unless we can acknowledge that acknowledge the origins of these systems that we have created, systems which are of course then perpetuating further trauma in how we then interact with them and exist within them, we we will not be able to then take the, the necessary step of healing together to be able to um, get, get beyond these trauma-based fear-driven uh, kind of orientations, incentives um, and therefore systems. So that the, the question then, of course, is just how? How do we do that? That response? How do we do that healing in, in a moment where, because of all of those incentives, uh, all those sort of orientations, all those systems we've designed around separation and control and domination, accumulation? We exist in a in a situation where it's, or in a kind of arrangement where it's very difficult for us to coordinate. Very difficult for us to collaborate and cooperate. And do the things that we now know from some of the sciences we mentioned earlier were critical to our evolution as a species. So we're sort of, that's, I guess that's the, 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 the question is how do we heal and how do we reorient in that healing our systems towards essentially maintaining life? Cause that's or serving life. That's, you know, arguably what we might be here to do. Um, if there is anything for us to do um so yeah that but that that is, and that is a for for me based on everything that i've like spent all my time kind of trying to understand that very simple story and it is simple um and maybe too simple feels accurate feels as, as accurate as maybe it can be and it feels like a, a, a useful way maybe a helpful way of identifying steps that we might then take together to try and to try and get ourselves through this this predicament. Um, but as I say, there's a risk in it as a story. Um, stories can't tell the whole story.
1: Mm. What a beautiful line. Stories can't tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. Gabor Mati does quite a lot of work on this. Yeah. Um, and he definitely comes through the frame. And for anyone listening, Gabor Mati is a medical doctor and a an addiction specialist. Um, Originally from Hungary, survived the... Um, Nazi invasion in World War II, survived the Holocaust, um, and then settled in Canada, um, in Vancouver, I believe. And his frame is that everything is trauma. Um, All autoimmune diseases are originally trauma, addictions are trauma, and he has also done quite a lot of talk on um, talking about the situation in Israel and Palestine and saying, look, these are trauma responses on both sides. Like This cannot... um, Nothing will be healed until this original trauma is sort of healed. There's also a lot of indigenous wisdom around um you're gonna be able to correct me on this. Watiki?
0: Watiko, yeah.
1: Watiko, watiko. The and isn't that like that's just sort of everybody's original trauma, right?
0: Yeah, so I mean I think how I understand a lot of that analysis and there are various different uh there's also the indigenous critique of the sixteen hundreds that, that Graeber and Wenlo talk about in their book The Dawn of Everything, which is so good. Um uh, where they uh the base the basic idea is that we had protocols in place in our cultures before we were traumatized that enabled us to identify and work with the natural tendency we have towards narcissism towards sociopathy, it, 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 you know, exists in us as a potential. And they would have protocols in place to deal with that if it emerged in their culture. Like what? Based, well You're throwing so somebody
1: like, off a cliff? <laughs> I mean, kind <laughs> of. Well, I
0: mean, first of all, they had, you know, they had sort of uh, rites of passage so that, you know, when a young male was reaching age 15, 16, they would go into the woods and spend time by themselves. And they would, as a result of that, be... Brought into an understanding of their into into being existence with the rest of you know uh, their coexistence, they would come to develop humility, vulnerability, um, sobriety uh, about their place in in you know in the wider thing. Um, and our version of that is we we send kids to university to get blind drunk um, together in a group. So we have lost that. Um, but then also like if someone were to sort of you know, infringe upon the society somehow. Someone to commit a crime, and um, there would be there would be processes of identifying that, working through it. If they were particularly, you know, uh, problematic, they would be exiled for a period. And maybe they'd come back later. But we we you know we we lost all of that. Perhaps in the trauma process, we lost touch with these things. Uh, and you look at you know you look at our culture now. We venerate narcissism. Essentially, we we. Put it in the highest positions of power in the world. Mm. <laughs> so, that, that, yeah. uh, that I think, you know, one way of describing what a lot of, as I understand, indigenous critique kind of points as is there's a sort of, there was like a Pandora's box type of process happening where we kind of we let it out of the box. We lost, we lost, you know, um, lost our protocols for, for handling ourselves essentially. Um, so yeah, we take yeah we take as I think it's the sort of it talks about it like a disease, like we are we are diseased.
1: The uh, hungry ghost. Mm. Mm. But I think what's interesting in all of these examples, and this is something you and I talk about quite a lot, is like this um, the embodied nature of the past versus like the disembodied reality of the present. So. It's much, much easier for communities to keep an eye on what is going on and keep an eye on people's behavior and for the majority to win in consensus against a maladaptive minority when everybody knows each other yeah. and when they're embodied in, their, in, the, in the land, in the places where they, where they live. Um, and this process of like alienation and um, dispossession, because we've all been dispossessed right that's sort of the 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 horrors i think that a lot of western people are kind of i don't really like to use this terminology waking up to because it's a bit condescending but mm. nonetheless there's this awareness that the irish have been shouting about for a very long time to be fair to them <laughs> <laughs> that we've all been dispossessed from our land in a sense I and mean, all been dispossessed from our communities that coupled with like a population growth and centralized government in order to maintain control and And under the illusion to, you know, feed people and make everything work smoothly, only serves to reinforce this um, message, essentially, that communities fundamentally don't have the right and cannot look after themselves. That everything needs to be handed over to this, like, objective, unbiased system that has been built, as you're saying, on the back of trauma. So it's inherently... Biased in the same way that chat GPT is inherently yeah. biased because of what yeah. it's been fed, um, and so it's, it would seem to me that uh, the healing process would also be about coming back into community. Surely, Absolutely.
0: yeah. And and it you know there's so much we can say about that. Yeah. Um, the, the one and the things around it to do with localism and and the risks of that if we don't also include a kind of uh, global. Globally networked relationship, um, um, but maybe that's a, maybe that's a tangent because there's just something in there that's really interesting about but yeah the risk of that's your question about how do we make this not sound woo woo and hippie. The other question is how do we make it not sound like let's all go live in caves again, everybody, mm. <laughs> you know, and like hair shirts and the all that the, the sort of natural response of a lot of people who are quite reactionary in the situation, saying like you you just want us to go back in time. Mm. In a funny way, like yeah, <laughs> because <laughs> cause, like back in time, we had our shit together actually in in, a, in ways that we don't. Um, like again, the indigenous critique of the particularly like, the Wendat people when they met with the, the, yeah. the French settlers in the 1600s, they spent a long time with each other talking, you know, chatting and understanding one another. And at the end of it, the Wendat were like, "You guys have got this wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we're we're quite happy here. We're having a good time. It's lovely." You seem to be really, really not happy, and <laughs> you're fighting, and you're diseased, and you're over here trying to nick our shit, and uh, I've, I'm not sure you're, you're doing this right. Yeah. Um, and so there is there is a dimension to that, and I, I find it quite funny when people talk about like, you know, if, if you have a conservative, uh, you know, conservative interest, and interest to sort of preserve traditions, it's like, how far back are you willing to go? Because <laughs> um, actually... Um, and there is, yeah, there's, um, there's, uh, there's, there's, there's a, a really funny moment in in a conversation between Daniel Schmachtenberger and um, Nora Bateson recently, where he he talks about how it's insane that we we live in this world where we work in jobs that we don't really want to have, that we struggle through to make the money to feed ourselves, to look after ourselves, um, and then with get stressed out by this and with the two weeks of the year that we have to you know have a break from that and he's talking about in the u.s where holiday allowances are crazy um mm. we we go camping Hmm. and we basically live i think as he puts it, a shitty version of the indigenous lifestyle <laughs> so it's like you know it or we go to the beach and like mm. what's what is going to the beach actually mm. so there's the uh, yeah like all the clues are there <laughs> Well, the clues are there. And again, and and I don't, I don't think of it as going backwards. I mean, we can't go backwards, right? So like, but we can retrieve, we can retrieve what, what worked, what we have been able to see had, had worked, has worked in all sorts of different ways. You know, and it's another, it's another response to the, oh, you're just, you just want us to all be communists. Like, no, (laughs) communism is, it, it, it was based on a similar, um, trauma in a sense, like a desire to control and to have certainty. It's like we can't have those things. Lots of things about communism principles in there that are valuable and important, but we're not talking about wholesale. That's again, it's like very simplistic. And one of the biggest challenges probably is that we've got to try and navigate and live in complexity in in a moment when, because we're traumatised, we we strive or we, we we seek out simplicity wherever we can find
1: it. Yeah. I think this desire for certainty as well really reveals itself in how we speak about history, how we tell the story of history, um and this constant idea of progress. like I remember as a young girl being taken into those really weird like places where they remake scenes from like medieval medieval times or the dark ages or whatever. Hmm. And the kind of claustrophobia of being presented with how people used to live. And it was always peasants, yeah? Never the bloody kings, never got shown how they Mm -hmm. used to bloody live. And there was no critique as well on the fact that some people were living in dire poverty, whilst others, um, quite the inverse, actually. Like, why was there an elite class? And why was there a peasant class? And why were the peasant class working those fields? And where was that food going? Where was that surplus going, essentially? Um, but instead, it was kind of driven home in a sense of like, and now we are here. And isn't that so much better? Like, oh, plumbing. Um, mm. Never mind that plumbing has been, you know, a fact of most civilizations over the mm-hmm. millennia. And it was, mm-hmm. you know, this mm-hmm. shitty little island that um, <clears throat> failed to catch up. <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> probably because the elite weren't investing in their um, uh, productive class as much as others. Mm-hmm. Um I think that's why people then think have this this fear around, well what does what does the next step look like? What does that retrieval look like? Like surely it's gonna look like us living with our bovine in the kitchen. Um yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is always the thing that stands out. Yeah. Um or being serfs. And it's like, no, 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 no. That part of history also wasn't good. That part of history also reflects where we are today in that there was a an exploitation and extraction and a domination happening. Um and what the next bit could look like, well that's kind of up to all of us in a sense. And that's really, really exciting if you prefer the idea of the unknown over the certainty of the the destruction that is undoubtedly coming our way and is already starting to erode the very fabric of modern civilization. But for mm-hmm. people who are living in really, really precarious lives and experiencing the real suffering of what it is to be a modern person, quite frankly, I was reading Peter Church and last night he was talking about the how the deaths of despair have gone through the roof in the United States since 2008. Mm-hmm. People just either suicide, addiction, um, also there's lots of ways to kill yourself, apparently. Um they feel like they need a sense of certainty or a real vision in order mm. to respond. Mm. And so how can we, you talked earlier about inviting people into the room. How can we invite people into the room when we don't know what it looks like?
0: Yeah, it's such a, such a critical, uh, it's, it's a question I carry around a lot with this quote from a guy called Rick Ingraski. who said, if you want to change the world, you we know, a better party. Hmm. And and again, that's a very simple statement, but it hel- I think it holds a lot of truth about human psychology and you know, how to motivate people. And, and and the difficulty with the quote is that the question become, immediately becomes what, what is be- better according to who? And if it's if it's better according to a life-serving set of systems that enable us to, you know flourish as a species and as a member of any set of you know inter-interwoven species uh, on a living planet then the that party might not look particularly attractive to us now according to our current habits comforts addictions um you know cultural norms so the the sort of design challenge is well how do we how yeah how do we having had a rough sense of like because I think we can probably get like a rough sense of what this needs to be like, and how do we how do we give people a free sample of that so that through experiencing it they can <laughs> they can have a taste of it. oh yeah okay, right, yeah, 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 I see, and you know a lot of people are doing that a lot of people are kind of building alternative economic systems or economic or kind of you know Farming systems are heavy in small scale places around uh, you know around the world um offering essentially offering people that kind of experience um to to come in and you know see okay well it could be like this um but it is yeah it's it's difficult otherwise if we're not experiencing it physically in an embodied way as, as, you, as you describe it there, um then we are it's really difficult for us to truly see it um there's a, uh, another quote from uh, Anat Schenker Azorio who's a comms uh, and sort of movement mm-hmm. strategist in the US who she says yeah, she says that the expression I'll see it uh, I'll believe it when I see it is the wrong way around and actually it's more accurate to say I'll see it when I believe it so unless we believe in the importance of these these different ways and we believe in the potential for them to be better then we will not you know be Interest, be even able to see them, let alone be interested in them. Um, so that then comes into the process of, well, how do we kind of work at that level of belief, I guess? And, you know, what are the narrative waters that we're swimming in? How can we be kind of seeking to adjust those to make those kind of worlds more, uh, feel more possible, more attractive? Um, there's something else you made me think of and I've not forgotten it. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'll come back in a second. Remind me of how we got into that, just then.
1: Oh, I have no idea. I tangented. (laughs) (laughs) Good. But I can take it somewhere else. Yeah, go on. Let's do it. So this whole, I'll see it when I believe it thing. And Mm. I think that's such a good quote and it's so important. And what I've been doing recently on the show is like pushing back on the solutions being offered because there are solutions and we know that there are solutions. Uh, But for some reason, uh, the solutions aren't getting deployed on a large scale. It's like they're not allowed to be deployed. Um, And so taking it also back to trauma and this very well-known understanding that you cannot heal in the environment that made you sick. Mm -hmm. How much effort should we also be putting on um, trying to see, trying to believe the power structures that currently extract and exploit and colonize lands, bodies, minds, in order to funnel uh, an economic system that has inbuilt growth imperatives that cannot function any other way. Mm -hmm. Um, And it does seem we'll, you know, destroy our biosphere before letting up. Like all evidence points to that over the past uh, half century Mm -hmm. since people have been screaming about the, the crisis, the interlocking crises. So... Rather than also just throwing a better party, should we also be focusing on trying to say to people, this party sucks? Like, this isn't a party. This is a killing field.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 100%. I think that that better is obviously a relative term. So, like, Mm. there's uh, in order for us to be able to understand it's better, we have to be able to understand why that would be attractive. But we also have to understand better than, you know, this and like this. I think most people are kind of there, like in the, <laughs> if they really pay attention to to the, how they're feeling. Um and that it kinda of, it, it reminds me of the thing that um that I was thinking of before, which is that one way of kind of one way of describing the kind of cultural landscape that we exist in, the kind of narrative waters that we're swimming in, is that we exist in this narrative of separation, um, and what we need to be shifting towards is narrative of interbeing. Again, it's quite a sort of simple way of defining it um and we think of this narrative of separation okay it comes from this this trauma maybe um it's uh it feels like it's been there for a long time it came through you know religion and philosophy and and into our kind of military and uh market systems and and like it's it's really embedded but actually if you look at like all of human history it's only if if all of human history all two hundred thousand years or so was an hour then it's only been here for three minutes so like it, it's not like uh, the the veneer theory is a, the idea that you know civilization is a is a veneer on top of savagery, and if we dismantle civilization, then we just become savages. I think it's the other way around.
1: <laughs>
0: I think that the, the sort of what we call civilization um, is, is is a savagery on top of you know something deeper and more beautiful um, that we have been denying and ignoring. And actually, if we were to crack through that veneer of separation of you know the trauma that we hold um, underneath, it's it, you know the, the stuff is there. Uh, it's been there for a long time because it's it's how we got here in the first place. It's what allowed us to evolve. Um, whether it's talking about our you know natural inclination towards kindness, towards friendliness, towards m- mutual aid, like towards like, th- these are all there for people. And when you when you ask people you know, to spend time really reflecting on what they would like the world to be, as for example, Rob Hopkins did, um, the answers you go out a little bit further into the future. They they kind of coalesce around something very similar. Um so that that yeah, that kind of that feels like a a sort of hopeful way of thinking about it. It's like we it, it's just under the surface. And what's on top of it is is significant, and it's being held there by trauma um but if we can begin that, if we can go through a process to uh to heal together to sort of find ways to do that and um, to come into community in a genuine sense and um, to reorient around care and so on then we then we you know we can tap back into what's underneath i don't know that's uh that's maybe. Maybe encouraging, I don't know, is it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's encouraging. I don't think it tells the full story, though, mm. in that that veneer isn't just being held in place by trauma. It's also being held in place by the systems with yeah. which were created by trauma. Yeah. Um, And I feel like... I think now's a good time to talk about the Barbie movie.
0: Yes, um, Barbie movie.
1: <laughs> 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 yes. Because... Um, Obviously, the sort of the biggest moment of like gaslighting in that film was when the character suggested that the only piece of action that you need to take to undo the patriarchy is simply to talk about it, mm-hmm. is to see it and to talk about it. And that removes its power. Mm-hmm. And that is obviously like fundamentally un. Um, it's fundamentally antithetical to all social justice movements around the world um, and neuters the reality of the first wave of feminism, second wave of feminism um, and all civil rights movements um, in the history of the entire world. So Mm. beyond recognizing it, beyond coming together, beyond speaking about it, beyond sharing these stories, what do we actually do about power? Because it's very likely that power will simply not allow large scale solutions to be implemented because it's antithetical to its survival. And what we have seen over the past, like from do- recent documented history, is that whenever a real threat comes along, power, you know, takes it out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, sort of going back to your earlier point with the better party. It's, it, 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 it can't just be talked about. It has to be experienced. It has to be mm. felt um, in the same way that this better party has to be experienced to be understood. Like, this has to be experienced. And we're, we're sort of, those of us in you know living in our countries are living these sort of low-intensity struggles uh, compared to those who are living the, the high-intensity struggles. Um, and we don't listen to them. Um, but as we start to experience the higher-intensity version of the struggle, maybe we need to. And then, when sort of joining in with that. Um and I think that becomes yeah, you know, that becomes the answer is that basically power it depends on what we what we define it as, I suppose. Like whether we're talking Ooh, about let's do it.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Um But d- be- just before we get into that, there's there was such a great description of someone who was a journalist, I think, and who had been writing about uh a revolution that had been occurring. Uh and they were sort of uh, uh, campaigning for it. And they described being at uh, some kind of action and being bodily thrown through a window by a police person um, uh, or a soldier. And uh, they said that on this side of the window, they were a campaigner. And on the other side of the window, they were a revolutionary. Like it took them physically experiencing What the people that they were sort of standing by and, you know, supporting were experiencing to truly come around to the position of like actively taking action to respond to, to push back against, to dismantle that oppressive force. Um, And that's, yeah, I think that just, that's an example of, that backs up the the idea that we need to be somehow experiencing this, drawing attention to how we are experiencing it. Um, And... Can we go
1: meta on that for a second? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know where I'm going to go with this, so bear with me. But if part of the modern weaponry of a of a modern state is like the invisibilization of trauma, because we're so atomized and individualized that like nobody is really bearing witness anymore to one another, there's either this assumption that we're all experiencing it, so it's normalized. Um, with like shifting baseline syndrome changes um, or nobody is there to be with us in our suffering essentially and it's like too difficult to talk about. And so I just wonder if that is part of being embodied again, like the fact that that journalist was thrown through bodily through a window in a crowd essentially by other people who were also there campaigning for the same thing and that experience of violence was... People bore witness to it. He didn't just suffer it alone in the way a lot Mm. of people experience state violence alone at the moment, Mm. whether it's being locked up unfairly in jail cells, whether it's, um, you know, the police right now, you know, the police entering activists' homes in the United Kingdom at six o'clock in the morning to arrest them preemptively, which is madness. Um.
0: Yeah, we're in pre-crime territory, aren't we?
1: Yeah, totally. It's, I mean, Orwell, like, yeah. uh, he, rolling in his grave, I'm sure. Um, I just wonder if there's also something about like the embodiment of experiencing the violence as well, which allows people to then, uh, come together in a revolutionary force that is typically invisibilized by a modern state that is atomizing all of us constantly.
0: Yeah, completely. It's it's one of the defense mechanisms of, of the entity, you know, that that we are kind of talking about trying to dismantle and, um, and, um, you know, heal, heal. Cause I, I think that that's, I think it was James Bridal who suggested that, that we have a fear of generate of general AI, i.e. a sort of self-perpetuating, um, self-defending entity that isn't, that doesn't carry human needs as its priority and so may destroy us all. He says that. Well, that, that they say that it's already here. It's the, it's uh, the corporation, mm. and you know maybe you, you scale that out further. To so it's, it's the whole system. Um. So. So yeah, how do we um. How the, one of the defense mechanisms of that is to keep those of us closer to the sort of nexus of power comfortable enough to not be uh noticing it yeah and divided enough from those who are noticing it and experiencing yeah. it and and carrying the myth that that the intention of this entity is to gradually distribute its uh its wealth essentially outwards rather than it actually being um an intention to draw wealth inwards to it um and so in a way, it's already happening that we are experiencing as it, as it sort of, as it kind of accelerates towards uh, its own end game. Um, the waters are rising as it were, like, so before they've only, they've only kind of been down here and it's been lots of different people all over the place who've been oppressed by this system and have experiencing that, this entity. Um, but now the waters are rising up and they, they're reaching, you know, us in sort of Privileged positions in, in in countries that in the past have been able to just sort of blithely get along and believe that you know they were part of a good thing that was doing the good stuff progress and um, and now we're we're being slowly drawn into that um, and we the, the the I think the need is to is to turn to those who've been underwater for longer and go sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and what do we do yeah. and not not what do we do like tell us what to do but like we're here like yeah. we're with you now yeah um and there's a there's a great uh sort of parable from a brazilian community um that says uh yeah you know, when the, when the waters are rising um you will need to learn how to swim but uh but you will only be able to learn to swim when the water is deep enough for you to actually be swimming, and mm. that's that's like like in a, in our in our parts of the world, we're stuck, The waters are starting to reach us. I'm talking metaphoricals, of course, but also in some senses, literally up the road in Scotland right now. Mm-hmm. Um, in in a way, a question is that how do we yeah how do we kind of learn to swim um, before we before we have to? and um, but I've gone off on one a bit there. I think. Uh,
1: no. <laughs> how do we learn to swim before we have to and what happens I mean I think this is also what's scary right is a, a drowning people maybe that is the moment that they have to learn to swim but the action of swimming is going to be so much more chaotic and frightening and people will be lost yeah. um, than if they'd been organized before And I think to just also add like a geopolitical frame to that, to the fact that the waters are rising and we need to turn around and sort of say to those people, hello, we are here with you. Um, Peter Turchin talks about how elites like can export instability. Um, So they essentially extract, although he doesn't, Mm -hmm. he uses the term wealth pump rather than extraction, which I find very revealing. Mm -hmm. Um, But they extract from the productive class and when the triangle becomes too top-heavy, when there's too many elites and too many elite aspirants, people that want to be in that category, Mm -hmm. and the population are immiserated because they've been extracted from too much, then what happens, according to his theory, is that actually it's intra-elite fighting that will topple Mm -hmm. the society rather Mm -hmm. than... It's very rare that it's like a productive class revolt or a peasant revolt. Um, Mm -hmm. But using that frame... To me, the past sort of since the post-war boom, essentially what happened is like we exported all of our instability to other countries, to these either colonies or former colonies and just took and took and took and took. And that explains the boom, the rising levels of um, consumption, of life expectancy, of just all-round benefits essentially that were experienced by Europe, by the West, um, United States. With people not really asking, like, where did all this stuff come from? Who's making it? Which is quite interesting. Um, And now we are running out of resources. That's it. We are fundamentally running out of resources. So they have, whether it's um, less access to certain resources in the world because of, mm-hmm. you know, democratically elected governments, whether it's the fact that we're just running dry, actually. And so they've come to extract from their own people again.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Because it's more difficult to extract elsewhere. And that's why we're seeing this like massive inequality. Um, But I think following his theory and also linking in the climate crisis, which is this like, um, it's first, it is a global social justice issue, but it's also a global like existential issue Mm -hmm. um, for everyone. And everyone is going to experience it, perhaps not equally originally, but they will experience it. How to like foment <laughs> a productive class revolt or organization so that it's not so that the whole thing isn't toppled essentially by um a weak elite class merely perpetuating the dynamics of the system that have created them in the first place
0: mm-hmm. because yeah because presumably when that kind of elite class collapse occurs. What emerges from the rubble is likely to be another iteration of. Yes. That. Yeah, yep. it's, it, there's, um, uh, Kate Rayworth said really brilliantly recently in response to the Milton Friedman statement, you know, in a crisis, it's the things that are lying around that, that we, we pick up and, and move forward with. And she said, why, why are they lying around? Why don't we have them up on their feet? And like, let's be doing that now. Let's be getting mm-hmm. this stuff ready. And I think I I definitely see that a lot, like I see people establishing the things um, out in the world, anticipating the failure of this current system, um, set of systems, power structure, um, and basically being ready as like the cushion for that collapse. and trying to alongside that as much as possible uh bring people along on the journey of being able to then identify to be able to see those things in that moment as the things to go to as the things as the cushion um uh and so in a way that's that's a sort of that's a kind of response rather than a revolt i guess it's a kind of in anticipation of that kind of collapse, it's attempting to make sure that in that collapse, the same thing is not repeated. And that may be all we can manage. But what could happen to your question? What, what would it look like if we had, you know, people around the world truly coming together to stand against that power, to recognize that power is not a zero sum game, that the power that the people we think of as powerful have, to a large extent, not completely, obviously, but to at least to some extent, is sort of power that we have give we give them. What yeah? What could happen with that? What what would that like? What could that? How effective could that be in not in that thing? They're not collapsing kind of catastrophically, mm-hmm. but instead being kind of gently laid to rest, <laughs> and then you know, hospice as it were, to allow for the birth of the next thing to follow. Um, How? Yeah. How kind of how aggressive would that have to be? How? Yeah. What? What kind of opposition? Oppositional kind of energy would that? I worry. I worry about
1: this Um, descent into fascism that we're experiencing, and yeah, the fact that. It doesn't really seem to be noticed. Like, I keep having these moments of derealization when I'm in the UK walking around being like, is this what Germany was like um, but just before... Or, like, on Hitler's rise when there were already Nazis and they were sending out pamphlets and were people just going about... I know they were suffering after World War One, but were they just sort of still going about their lives sort of incapable of imagining that this thing would, would become real? Um, so I worry about... The yeah. in the same way that like, yes, we give power, power also because of the amount that we give um of power, power also gives us space to experiment and to try and to do whatever. And I just worry yeah. that this belief that what will emerge out of the rubble will be these like cushions rather than armies, you know, to try and um Quell a revolting population Or an angry population I just yeah I worry that that's a more likely outcome And that we don't We're not prepared for that at all Although I have noticed that like um, The messaging has suddenly changed From um, I mean Greta for example When she was doing Occupying sort of the, the fossil fuel JP Morgan in London I mean, that was all like, the elites aren't going to do anything, we have to get organized, yet a Mm -hmm. stark difference to a couple of years ago. So there does seem to be something bubbling uh, within the activist movement, this awareness of like, we are going to have to get organized collectively to go up against and start doing things ourselves, it seems.
0: Yeah. These institutions and these powers that we have expected to to be there for us um are not and that's evident and there's so many precedents for that in recent time that we can very easily point there and say see uh they're not um and so although it's difficult because we are we have li- lived in such a consumer and um, someone else will fix it for me for free kind of mode um the 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 renewal of the retrieval of agency um seem yeah does seem seems to be occurring at least in the rhetoric and some of the behavior uh if that can happen it you know spread and that that could yeah that could be that could be really powerful as an antidote to the fascism tendency which of course is all about like giving the power away to someone who's going to look after you and protect you so if we if, in a way that's like a really powerful you know sort of uh narrative thought, it's like we need to Reinforce, reinforce that, that reality, the story of that, that we, it's all, it's on us. Um, and it is us together who will find a way through this predicament. And, um, and that these, these powers do not serve us. They're not interested in us. And the entity that they are agents of is not interested in us. Uh, and if we can come in to realize that, and that could be, yeah, very, very powerful, and again, yeah, an antidote, perhaps, to the the fascism that's bubbling. Because I, I don't know about you, but I see the fascism, the sort of fascism signals, I don't know how many of them come from, from, like, really come from people. Go on. Well, how many of them are sort of, you know, like there's a there's a thing in the UK called the New Culture Forum, for example, which is a small group. Do you know that, the New Culture Forum? Mm-mm. It's like a small group that gathers and basically tells everybody or or tries to sort of build the narrative that it's the immigrants that are the problem and, you know, that's the biggest threat. And and woke culture is, you know, an existential risk to humanity and and this kind of thing. And, And there's not many of them. They're like teeny tiny. The fact that through the channels of communication they might have quite a lot of reach is genuinely concerning. But if we if we go and speak to most people on the ground, where are they at? I don't know. I, I would I would expect that there, there's more potential there for the kind of thing we're talking about there to 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 have, you know, soil for it than um, than what this new culture forum and others like it are trying to sort of get to happen.
1: I think it comes back to a question of certainty again. Mm. Because if you can offer somebody a very clear narrative, like this is the enemy, this is the problem, and people know that there is a problem because they can feel it. They can feel it in their bodies. They can feel it in their minds. They can feel it in their community. Mm. Um, then, well, great. Now I know what the problem is. Thank you very much. But when it's a more complex answer, like, listen, the problem is actually um, 10,000 years of like mutual abuse, essentially. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's um, patriarchy, but it's not about men, um, and it's about uh, land. Even though your concept of land as a Western person is totally like dispossessed, and you know, like mm-hmm. it's it's just so much, it's about power, but power isn't really a person. There is no evil mm-hmm. group. It's about a system. What is it? It's about system dynamics. Mm-hmm. It's all about, you know, like that's it's so much more for people to kind of wrap their head around. That saying, "Oh, the immigrants are the problem." That's something that they can like get behind. Essentially, like there has to be yeah. a. There already has to be a healing process. I was thinking about this when you were talking to come into agency. Yeah. You mm-hmm. don't have to be fully healed. And the, even this idea of like the destination of healing, this is something you and I talk about a lot. The de- the de- the destination of anything, heaven, whatever, is absolutely nonsensical. But mm-hmm. by the same token, in order to um, begin to retrieve one's agency, you have to take that first step on a healing journey which is even like I deserve some agency because I have a modicum of self-respect right Mm
0: -hmm. because I have
1: a modicum of self-love um and that is it that's where uh, healing begins um Mm. but I don't know how do you how do you offer like the space for how do you yeah, I don't I don't know, because that thing is like you can't get you can't get well in the environment that made you sick. Yeah, but you have to have enough agency to, like, pick yourself up and leave the environment that made you sick. Like, that's what I mean in the first step of the healing journey. But when it feels like there's nowhere to go. I don't know.
0: No, it's such a good question. And, you know, it's why things like people encouraging us to switch off from social media are sort of steps in that direction. Like we're we're taking ourselves out of the conditioning apparatus wherever we can, to and taking ourselves out of the you know the kind of virtual and otherwise environments that are maintaining the trauma, re-traumatizing, holding us in our you know hurt. Um, uh, but yeah, I think you're. I, I guess like one t- one way of d- d- describing what you're what we're talking about there is like how do we. Like, what's the simple, what's the simple way in for people that isn't like, okay, so we're going to have to go on this, like, very long course. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you're going to have to spend multiple days. <laughs>
1: and lots of money.
0: Lots of money. <laughs> uh, uh, and it's going to be great. And we're going to meet yeah. some monks and it's going to be fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: you were going to meditate your way into yeah. heaven. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah.
0: and. Um, but it's like like whoa. if we if we look at separation as a sort of as the kind of key key misunderstanding and a key like malcoordination or key kind of driver of malcoordination and then um you know what it would take to sort of to dismantle that and shift, hospice that story and, and shift into sort of into being, acknowledge into being. Um, like with the with the suggestion from this uh, Loretta Ross that you shouldn't try to change people's minds. you shouldn't t- people t- try to change people's thoughts. You should seek to displace people's thoughts. And um, mm. what can displace the separation narrative? Well, if the separation narrative is kind of oriented around. Um, being able to think of nature as a as a thing in itself as separate to us, therefore, and you know, be able to control it. If we can encourage a connection with with that wider, um, more than human world that we are coexisting with and only possible it's only possible to exist in coexistence with, um mm. then we could be uh disrupting, that, you know, disturbing that um uh, displacing that narrative, so one like really simple answer is like encourage awe wherever we can, whether it 's in stories or in you know experiences that we encourage people to have, or wherever it 's possible to, or for you know the more than human world and our place within it. Um, and maybe the route to that is through the cell. Because, you know, so often the story about we need to love nature, like go hug a tree, you know, put a <laughs> thumbs up on this poor polar bear. It's like that's treating nature as our garden. Nature's not our garden. It's not even our house, it's our it's us, right? So like how how can we if if we are in a culture of self orientation and self interest, maybe that's where we need to begin with, as you said, like self love, loving yourself and then beginning to recognize that the self is well beyond what we consider it. So, if we can expand the understanding of the self to recognize that the self is, you know, well into the more than human world as a thing to try and define, then we can encourage a love for that, desire to protect that. Therefore, we can support things like, you know, ecocide law, which literally throws a massive spanner in capitalism because it it reveals the true cost dynamics that fossil fuels and the entire system depend on uh, obfuscating so that we can you know move forwards away from that system um so that like how do we how do we generate the awe that that leads to those kind of support for those kind of interventions and that encourages a sense of humility and empathy and uh, joy uh and helps to disturb and disrupt and dismantle a, a sort of separation narrative that is uh at, you know arguably a big dimension to what's holding us where we are um and also of course being in nature wherever we can encourage that again nature being being outside of uh our kind of dead spaces um uh is also a, is healing um and offers an opportunity for healing um, because of all of the different you know interactions that we have in in a you know when we're in the woods, for example, that we're not aware of uh, kind of going on and um, so that yeah that doesn't that doesn't tell us exactly how to do that, but I think it starts to present some fairly kind of clear steps, and that that's alongside other things of course, but like that that maybe is an interesting way in. So we, rather than like having to go to people and explain a whole bunch of stuff, we sort of, it's Trojan horsing it quite, but it's like, it's a kind of gateway into being able to then recognize and understand. I don't know. What do you think of that? Maybe that's a (laughs) lot (laughs) of nonsense.
1: No, I like like it, obviously. And I really like the framing of um, dead spaces versus Mm. alive spaces. Um, Jacques Attali, for all I do not agree with him in his new book, talks about the economy of death versus the economy of life. Yeah. Um, and I think that is a very helpful binary, actually, probably the only helpful binary. Yeah. Um, life and death. So I like Mm -hmm. that framing. I guess I just, I'm in my very, these past few months, I think, since Papua New Guinea, um, I am very much in my pushing back phase of like yes but yes but like we've had those kinds of traditions around the world we've had we have indigenous wisdom we have had indigenous wisdom um even the you know look at the empire of china Mm. um whilst being an empire still was infused with this like Taoism, which is a very interesting philosophy that's about the big picture and goes beyond binaries and is much more about embedding people within nature and within sort of the the oneness of the world and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and yet, for whatever reason, this like sociopathic, narcissistic uh, society wins out. It beats every time, almost. And the countries that are now geopolitically coming up in the in the arena, like China as the next superpower, have abandoned that which um, Chinese philosophy was built upon for thousands of years in order to play at this game, yeah. in order to become a superpower. So I think um, if we're talking about, you know, civilization collapsing and what could come out of the rubble, like what could wiggle out between the cracks, then I, yeah, I think lots of amazing things. Um, because humanity has a tendency to diversely organize um, in a way that reflects these kinds of universal values. It's beautiful. But what do we also do about the fact that that may not be allowed? Uh, and normally when those two ideologies come up against one another, the powerful one that is focused on power and accumulating power wins. Because the other one is inherently more, how do I put this, prone to life and decay. And it's like it's just got stuck in a decay cycle. Like that's what this system does. It it ekes the life out of things. Mm-hmm. I don't.
0: Yeah, and I, I I totally hear you, and it's it's um. In a way, it kind of. In a way, it comes to the sort of, um, the the like tension of timing and the tension of urgency and all these mm. difficulties, because like arguably, what the sort of love for nature and the narrative shift stuff is like. That's a sort of inoculation process to avoid us catching the virus again Mm. um uh and it's slow and it's underneath and there are some moments of sort of social tipping pointiness that can happen in that but like it's basically kind of the undercurrent and that needs to be working with and alongside the kind of ground level movement level um action so that whatever's happening there is sort of working into that too and it's kind of coordinated um but then, yeah, there's there's got to be hold, you know, holding actions. There's got to be, um, ha, you know, harm stopping. There's got to be dismantling going on at the same time. Um, and I guess the question is, yeah, how do, you, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you do that in a way that doesn't perpetuate that? You know, how do you, how do you do violence in a way that doesn't perpetuate violence? Essentially, mm. um. And do so. And, and this is, you know, the probably one of the biggest challenges with the narrative thing is, you know, when, how do you reach people when the channels to do so are completely captured? When the, um, I mean, the thing about the, the Barbie movie that's like terrifying <laughs> is, is that that is, uh, I mean, I, I you know, had conversations with like, with feminists so, like oh yeah it's great it's brilliant and, what? and they, they they loved it and when when asked like what what they loved about it that the, the explanation they gave for loving it which is you know had a sort of element of defensiveness in it was literally like the marketing bullet points for the film like you can imagine in, in the deck you know like uh, mm. and it was it was like it's an inc- extraordinary coup that was pulled off with that yeah uh, and you yeah, know the marketing budget was mass was much bigger than the film's budget and all the rest um and we're talking you know there's the AI dilemma flagging of the risk of um Alpha Persuade as a sort of potential what's that uh, so uh, you know the uh, Alpha Go when they trained the machine learning system to learn how to play the game Go and then eventually chess and then eventually like quite complex you know online um strategy Mm games um they initially, you know, they initially like, okay, well, we'll see how this thing can get on. Um, maybe eventually it will be able to play against the human, and then like quite quickly, it kind of beat the human. And they were like, mm. <laughs> "Shit!" Um, and the same. The, the point with Alpha Persuade is, it's like, okay, so we 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 can know how to persuade people. Um, the Barbie movie is an extraordinary demonstration of our ability to understand human psychology to the extent that we can manipulate it and control how people think of it. Um. And if you throw an AI into that, an a, a system that can learn how to do that better than we can, and that's that's assuming that it has, it would have the capacity to understand us. Um, that would require us having to understand us sufficiently in the first place to input into it, I guess. Um, but then that becomes, you know, that becomes a a, a tool in a situation that is like. Uh, very hard to defend against and to inoculate against and that's when you know one answer to the how do you stop this is like you, you kind of have to maybe you do have to bring down some of the kind of channels themselves like if they're not if they're going to continue to essentially propagandize in that sense for the for the continuing the continuation of the existing set of systems um, uh, because the, obviously the sort of the interesting problem is that we have these tools and they would be enormously effective if they weren't perversely incentivized um, you know, to sort of sow this um, division and, and hate and rest in order to create profit. Um if if instead they were incentivized to serve life, to um encourage coordination, they'd be enormously powerful. Like, you know, what yeah. best things we've ever created on that. And so the question is, do you, you know, do you just destroy the channels and therefore remove the possibility of them being able to serve in that way? Or do you, you know, bring, completely alter the incentives so that those things can exist in a, you know, kind of pro-life sense, <laughs> not pro-life, um, in a pro-serving <laughs> life sense? Um,
1: yeah. You know, I've been thinking the uh, past few days, I was like trying to imagine what a global constitution would look like. Like, mm-hmm. if we managed to take the fuel out and sort of get rid of, you know, the, the I'm going to, put, I'm going to use a value judgment, but the bad stuff, mm. Um, what would a global constitution that w- look like that would, like, enshrine the rights of nature, Um, essentially put into writing all of this stuff that we've been talking about, about um, our relationship as well to the world, our relationship to one another, et cetera, mm. et cetera, how to live in balance with the biosphere. And then I was thinking, okay, and how do you write it in a way that if things get bad again, you can change it like if things become perverse again over time you can change it but people can't change it people can't make things perverse in order to change it or people can't use that preemptively to change you know what it's just like there just seems to be this kind of um and perhaps I'm thinking about it only within this paradigm of like you know um 10,000 years of this particular culture and you know 2,000 years specifically of western culture but um, it does seem hard to imagine a world in which we build things and they are just used for good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But
0: Sorry. I guess, I guess, yeah, you're, you're asking that question, like how do we, what protocols do we have in place that don't become like fascistic, you know, control mechanisms to guard against that potential for bad stuff?
1: Yeah, I think it's embodiment again. Maybe, because even if you think about war and the way that wars are fought today, and it's the way that wars are fought today, the scale of destruction. And when I say today, I do mean, you know, the the last world wars as well. The scale of destruction is enormous. The Mm. loss of human life uh, and other lives, unforgivable. And you know fine well that it's only happening because the guys giving the orders are nowhere near the battlefront. There's this separation that allows us as well to take decisions that place us in the position of gods Mm. because we're not down in the mud Mm. with the other men. And so if we were so embodied that like, you know, your Elon Musks and your Jeff Bezos's, you know, if they got a little bit too out of hand, they weren't protected in their, you know, the Hollywood Hills compounds but living with the rest of the community that could take them outside take them around the back and be like hey, do you know what mate maybe that's enough yeah. <laughs> maybe let us unionize have a mate. little
0: sit down shall we
1: yeah let's, let's have a chat Jeff let a <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe if these people couldn't hire private security guards to keep the unhappy masses away from them yeah um, they wouldn't do bad things
0: this again this goes back to like the so much of the beauty in that Dawn of Everything book is the description of these earlier human cultures that that we and you know that, that preceded the invention of the the concept of progress, which, according to that book, was a, a confection designed to respond to the indigenous critique. Because the indigenous critique was saying, "You guys have got it bad," and you know the culture at the time, I think it was Catholic, was like, "Well, it, it's not possible for." anything to be better than us. So we're going to create this story about progress and say that these guys are wrong and they're all the way in the past and we've been working forwards and civilization is a linear, off we go. So it's like, you know, des- designed in that way. Um, but they had this, these, these communities had these um, uh, kind of constantly adjusting political cultures where it was like, you know, for some of the year it would be kind of patriarchal. For some of the year it would be matriarchal. Um, for some of the year there would be like a, a very clear sort of single authority figure for some of the year it would be very kind of dis, you know distributed leadership um and it was responsive to the cycles and the you know the way that the world was working around and um and then they would have these festivals where they would all come together and like imagine totally different ways of existing and throw it all up in the air and go ah like this this person's an idiot and that's a lot of nonsense and, <laughs> and then it would land again and maybe they'd pick some of that up and go forward and no one you know no one ever had like the ability to sort of become powerful and stay that way <laughs> like mm, it, mm. it was all done on the basis of you know these uh this is they have our permission and that's all that's what we've completely lost right there's like these people do not have our permission i mean they so oh. <laughs> like at all um <laughs> so yeah how do we how do we get how do we get that back like
1: there's something it... Go sorry patty well just there's something interesting around institutions there, right? So, um, sure, technically we give our permission in, to politics in the sense that we vote, um, but there is an institution behind the the, the powerful, quote-unquote, and it is the institution that is powerful, not the person. They yeah. are wielding the power of the institution in order to do seemingly, increasingly, whatever the fuck they want mm-hmm. um, that wasn't in their election mandate. And so again, it's that that separation, this idea of like somebody being a president or a prime minister rather than a leader who will mm. be taken down or like um, moved to the side in the next cycle, and again, is not down on the ground with the people. Same with a mm. corporation, right? Jeff Bezos, mm. Elon Musk, all of these people—they are—they have created and then they get to hide behind the power of their own institution in order to kind of wield it in whatever way they want. And we have these legal structures in place. Like corporations are seen as, you know, are as legally entitled as human beings. The state is more legally entitled than bloody anything. It's mm. madness. And we wonder why it doesn't work.
0: Yeah. And it's based on, you know, it's based on on lies. The that uh which is again it comes back to like how do you how do you fight the bad stuff when the bad stuff I guess the kinda of a common tactic of the bad stuff is is to use Lies, because lies are faster, and lies can be what you want to hear to mm-hmm. sort of you know get places and and establish itself and that's um uh the yeah, the, the origin of the um you know the corporate uh personhood in the u s was the story is anyway that and maybe you've heard this before that they um that there was a railroad that was trying to get through some land is this familiar yeah, keep going. And they, they wanted to like get through a particular bit of forest and whatever the kind of version of the EPA was at the time, the Environment Protection Agency was like, no, you can't do that. And then, and it was just after the emancipation of the sla- uh, slaves. And so they were like, well, this thing over here says, you know, um, legal personhood for these people. So we're, we're, we're a legal person. We have rights. So we want to go through that wood. And it got taken to court. Uh, and in the court, the judge was like, ah, no. Hey. <laughs> no, silly. <laughs> <laughs> and it got it got, it got, you know, uh, thrown out according to the verdict. The clerk who recorded the case was on the payroll for the railroad and he recorded it as having gone through. And that becomes a legal huh? precedent. That legal precedent is then repeated. And so gradually this corporate personhood fallacy gets established as a legal sort of reality.
1: Hold on, hold on, that, hold on. That's the story. On. Anyway. Hold on. The clerk lied. Yeah. So that legal precedent is a lie. Yeah. Well, if we know that, why can't we overturn it now? Quite. Good God. I didn't know that bit.
0: Mm. And it, I mean, there's, there's sort of the fascinating, like, history of these, like, mistranslation. And someone like Bayou Malefe talks about mistranslations in a really interesting way. as like a sort of natural process of things kind of breaking and moving and evolving. But there are moments where it's like, ah, <laughs> like, <laughs> My favourite is um, is that Francis Bacon, the um,
1: Nutter, Nutter. <laughs> Sorry, yeah,
0: the <laughs> you know the Ang- Anglican godfather of the scientific method, but he wasn't an Anglican. Um, uh, is sort of famously quoted as having said that nature is our slave. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing is that that is a translation into English from French, which is a translation from f- into French from Latin. That he had originally written it. And the translation was done by French enlightenment thinkers who had taken the ideas of the Wendat people from that original encounter that were focused on liberty and, you know, fraternity and equality, uh, stripped all the spiritual, more than human orientation stuff out of it. Because that's, that was their orientation at the time, anti sort of spiritual, um, secular, so on, and then translated, um, uh, Bacon's words with that mindset and so they had translated the Latin for uh, it was like tor- tortura or something like that I can't remember the word um, into torture and into slavery therefore but if you look at Bacon's language in the context of him as an Anglican and in his own interests at the time what's much more likely is that what he was saying he was using that word tortura in the sense of torturing and of course in, in torture you sometimes torturing people and you know Oh, bloody hell. Yeah. So, like, this was, uh, this is, you can see how the French made that translation, but what's more likely is he was saying our relationship with nature is not slavery. It's a, it's a tautening like an instrument. Therefore, we need to live in tune with nature. Is, and are we gets, sure? That's the, is that, that was the suggestion, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Because okay. he also said, I mean, like Bacon also says a whole bunch of other quite horrific shit. But you did, yeah but but like that <laughs> that particular idea, which is so present, and it's not just come from him obviously, but it's so present in our you know treatment of the more than human world in the way that we you know literally lock it up in cages and enslave it for our bidding, like that that's um you know to serve us that's it it' be it's interesting to wonder, like, had that not been translated in that way, like what what should could things have been slightly different maybe? Absolutely. Possibly not, because there's so many other factors, but yeah.
1: Also, the, the Darwin thing, right? Yeah. Like yeah, this yeah, theory yeah. of survival of the fittest and mm-hmm. competition, which is like one theory of evolution. Other theories of evolution are about collaboration yeah. and cooperation mm-hmm. and ecosystems. And if that had come out, or even even the whole chimp versus bonobo.
0: Yeah, exactly. You
1: yeah. know, maybe maybe we'd all be living like the 1960s hippies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well 'cause what well, you know, with the uh, with Darwin it was that he'd he'd said survival of the fittest twice, isn't it, or something in his book? And like the first time was in the text and the second time was in a footnote saying, This isn't quite the right statement and then he'd used the word love eighty six times, like throughout mm-hmm. his text. And like that wasn't you know There you go. Again, believe it, see it. Like they didn't yeah. like Yeah. So yeah, it's um Yeah, I mean, it's this... it,
1: yeah. This is why history and science like must not ever be written just by the, the winning side, because everything is only ever written in the frame that allows you to perpetuate uh, or justify your inherent superiority. Like If you live in a hierarchical society and it's the people on top that are allowed to write about what society looks like, it's going to be written in a way that makes it look like they are there because they deserve to be and because they're better, because mm. they're fitter, because they're stronger, because they're whatever.
0: This this makes me think of something that I was reflecting on, actually walking about this morning. There's a proverb, is it a proverb? a sort of saying from other Hopi people: Um, uh, "The person who tells the story rules the world." And what's really what what I thought about this morning, though, it was interesting. It's like it's the statement is not the person who rules the world tells a story. Yeah. So there's. Again, like back to where we are and what we have available to us and this moment in time versus previous moments, we do have the ability to tell a story. Whether we can reach people with a different story or stories plural or, you know, um is is the challenge and it's not everything. Stories can't tell the whole story and all the rest. But like there is a capacity there that we maybe have lacked in the past that that we now have. Um yeah to be able to work with but I'm conscious of time but this the the point about agency again that's so interesting here is like um there's a thing called systems justification theory which I think is basically a kind of version of Stockholm syndrome almost where basically (laughs) like we've given away our agency right? we've disenfranchised ourselves over the course of 200 years or so um so that we're not you know we don't really have like democratic power at all it's a sort of it's a bit of a facade, um, but to acknowledge that, to acknowledge that we essentially have given away our power and don't have agency or, or have sort of forgotten our power, um, comes with indignity, uh, It's, and we don't really want to have to face that. So rather than accept the indignity of having given away our agency or forgotten our agency, we we sort of give a thumbs up to the system instead. Hmm. So, the question of like in in order to reclaim our agency, how do we how do we provide dignity in that process in order to prevent the system's justification that that's an interesting design challenge
1: that's really interesting, and that again also comes back to healing right yeah. and bravery bravery to say I allowed myself to be treated in this way, which is yeah. very different to the kind of like victimization. And I yeah. mean that in the most loving way possible that kind of mm. came out of like social justice and postmodernism, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is that we're all victims of state violence, you know, and yes, we are all, but on some level, we allowed it as well, yeah, and I think that accountability for the lack of self- respect and the accountability for our um role in the perpetuating perpetuation of a global system of colonization, exploitation extraction, all these things like that mm. is that is now what we're facing it's it's can we be brave enough to face reality? in order to make it in a new image.
0: Yeah. Mm. And to have the humility and vulnerability that that bravery demands. Yeah. Not just from the people up here. But well, and exactly. Yeah.
1: And it's that humility and bravery and vulnerability which would ensure that reality made in a new ma- image would be made in the collective image, not yeah. in the image of the few. Exactly. Oh. Right. Well, we've okay. cracked it. I guess I can <laughs> let you go then. <laughs> good, jobs are good
0: for a Friday. Uh, yeah. <laughs> go going to the weekend, feeling very good about <laughs> ourselves. It's all done. <laughs>
1: My final question for you, of course, mm. is: Who would you like to platform? There's
0: so many people. Um, I think the first, the, the person that first came to mind, I think, is someone you're already talking to, which is Vanessa, Andriotti who wrote Hospicing Modernity um, and has a perspective that is just so vital in this moment, I would say. Um, but I, I want—I do wonder if it would be interesting to talk to Mickey Kastan, um, who wrote the piece that contained the original trauma concept. Yeah. Um, the piece is called A Love Letter to My Brothers and is sort of facing into patriarchy, um, where that comes from. Uh, uh how we respond to it. Um but I've got like a whole list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, I mean, yeah, yeah. I could go on. I mean Amitav Ghosh will be amazing as well. Like his book, The Netflix yeah. Test, has been so useful, particularly with what's going on right now. Um, in understanding the relationship between war and power and capitalism and, you know, our systems that we have and the history we're dealing with. Um so that's just yeah, there's more. But hope that's good for now
1: that is paddy thank you so much thank
0: you such a such a joy
1: such a joy if you want to learn more i've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview if you liked this episode leave a review and share it far and wide if you loved it choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.